Amen. It's a new year, but it's the same gospel. It's the same God. It's the same grace. It's the same hope, the same comfort, the same foundation for our faith. It's Christ, the resurrected Jesus who died for sin and rose again, who offers us freedom, life, joy, hope, and peace. And even though it's cold outside and dead outside, there's a lot of warmth and life in here today. It's all because of the Spirit of God at work in the people of God. As we celebrate and remember these truths, truths that are really our hiding place, our refuge. So I hope that those songs are meaningful for you as they were for me. Thank you, Carrie, Tally, Ryan, Garrett, Jacob. You guys have served us well this morning. I want to invite you all to turn in your Bibles this morning to the New Testament book of Titus. We'll be in the book of Titus this morning. Our normal uh, approach to preaching, if you're new to our church, is that we typically preach through books of the Bible verse by verse. And there's a reason for that. It's not just because I'm not super creative and don't want to come up with new sermon titles and new sermon series all the time. Um, And it's also not because we're just out of touch with the world and we don't really know what sort of relevant topics that we should be talking about as a church. Uh, The reason that we preach through books of the Bible, um, it's intentional. Uh, We believe that expository preaching or expositional preaching, the kind of preaching that takes Scripture in its context and works sequentially through the Bible, that kind of preaching helps us as a church to faithfully teach and preach the whole counsel of God. Uh, There's a reason we take these books one at a time. And you might say, well, one of the things that's going to do is expose us to hard texts. You know, there's sometimes awkward places in Scripture that are difficult to understand and maybe a challenge for us. And to that we say, yes, that's one of the reasons we preach through books of the Bible, because we think that God knows what we need better than we do. And there's a reason he put some of those harder passages in the Bible. He knows that that's what we need. And my job as a pastor, our job as pastors, for myself and Stephen, is what 1 Timothy 4.13 says, to devote ourselves to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, and to teaching. In 2 Timothy 4.2, or rather 2 Timothy 3.16, it says that all Scripture is breathed out by God. Every book, Old Testament, New Testament. Every chapter, every verse, every word, it's all breathed out by God. And it's profitable for doctrine and reproof and correction and training in righteousness. In 2 Timothy 4.2, Paul urges Timothy, he says, preach the word. Because of what the word is, it needs to be preached. It needs to be heard. It needs to be believed and obeyed. And we want to cover all of it, Lord willing. So we take entire books of the Bible and try to work through them. We also think that preaching through the Bible expositionally not only helps us cover all the bases, but it's also the best way to understand the Bible. When we go through verse by verse, it helps us understand the Bible in its context. We take large chunks of scripture. We don't just want to teach our favorite verses. They're sort of scattered throughout the Bible in a disconnected fashion. And we also think that this kind of preaching allows the text to speak. And that's important. Done rightly, we want to uncover the author's message We want to understand what Paul meant and understand why he wrote what he wrote when he writes this letter, for example, to Titus. I don't just want to use scripture to back up my message. No, I want to discover the message that's already in the text and then draw that out to exposit that, to bring it out of the pages of scripture. We believe here that the preacher is the servant of the message, not the other way around. So that's why the normal approach we take is to systematically preach through whole books of the Bible. And while we'll occasionally step away and and focus on specific topics, this is sort of the bread and butter for here, for us here at Redemption Hill Church. So with that in line, and, and that's familiar for many of you, but a second question, not just why preach books of the Bible, but why Titus? Why would we, at the beginning of a new year, as we start kind of a new season for our church, why would we pick the book of Titus? Well, I'd like to tell you a little bit about this short letter, and then I think you'll see why. Um, Titus, very simply, is the name of a man who served along with Paul in the ministry. Titus wasn't Jewish like Paul. 
He was a Gentile, but he was saved. He was brought to faith in Christ through Paul's witness, and he was personally discipled by the apostle Paul. If you look down in verse 4 of Titus chapter 1, we see here that this letter is written to Titus, and he calls Titus, my true child in a common faith. True child in a common faith. That tells us a lot about their relationship. Even though Paul was Jewish and Titus was not, because Paul had led Titus to Christ, he sees him as a son, and he calls him a true son. Their spiritual connection was deeper than their racial differences. Paul saw Titus as family. And even though Paul was older in years, and even though he was a father in the faith to Titus, and even though Paul was an apostle, so he outranked Titus, at the same time, he looked at Titus in one sense as an equal. He was equal because they shared this common faith. They both stood on level ground at the foot of the cross. Titus was very involved in ministry with Paul. He traveled with Paul on several of his missionary journeys, and he was very involved with Paul's ministry in Corinth. In fact, he delivered several letters to the church in that city. And we find here in verse 5 that that Titus is once again involved with Paul in ministry. Verse 5, Paul says, This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. It's probable that the Cretans, Crete was an island there in the Mediterranean Sea. It's probable that there were some people from Crete who actually heard the gospel back at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. If you remember back in Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit came upon the apostles and they began preaching the gospel and all these different people that were assembled there in Jerusalem, they heard the gospel in their own language. And many thousands came to faith in Christ. And it's probable that there were some people from Crete who were, at that time, faithful adherents to Judaism, that they came and heard the gospel. And they took that gospel back home with them. So when Paul arrived at the island of Crete on his travels, what he discovered was that the gospel was already at work in a number of people. But the issue was there was no strong leadership yet in that place. There was no strong leadership in the church that could protect them from false teaching, that could lead the church in the direction they were supposed to go, and could model godly living for them. So Paul and Titus began working there on the island of Crete with these people, but Paul couldn't stay. He had places to go. He had other obligations. He had much ministry to do, so he left Titus on the island of Crete to finish the job, to put things in order to see healthy local churches established in each town, local churches that could be a faithful testimony to the gospel in their communities. You see, anytime you have a bunch of new believers that are gathering together for the first time, there's always going to be a need for instruction in doctrine and for instruction in terms of godly living. We need to know what to believe as followers of Jesus. And we need to know how to live. But any time the gospel takes root and the church begins to grow, you can also expect that there's going to be opposition. There's going to be doctrinal threats to the church. There's going to be conflict as to who's supposed to be a leader and how leaders are supposed to operate. There's going to be moral threats as different types of worldly behavior threaten to come in and corrupt the church. Crete is no exception to that rule. They were going to face all of these challenges. And so Paul trusted Titus to lead these believers through their questions, through confusion, through the conflict that was arising so that they could be established in the truth. That's why he says, this is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained, this flourishing, growing, thriving, young, immature, unorganized group of Christians, he says, put what remains into order and appoint elders in every town. And this is why I'm excited to preach through this book here today in our church. Very simply, the book of Titus is for the church. You could even call it a church planting manual. It's no secret we've experienced significant growth here over the last two years. 
I know a lot of people are out with sickness today. Stephen and Brady had a baby this week. There's ice on the road, so it's a little smaller group today, which is great. Hello to all of you who are watching at home. Um, But very simply, you guys know that with the challenges of growth, uh, there's going to be different things we need to understand as a church, challenges we need to face if we are going to be a healthy church. You see, the goal here is not just to get bigger in size. That's never been the primary goal. Our goal is to be healthy, to be spiritually mature, to be a pure church that believes the truth and walks in holiness and gives glory to God, honors him, rightly representing Christ in the world. And Titus, this book of Titus, is all about establishing healthy churches. That's why in chapter 1, right off the bat, he starts off with healthy leadership. And then he gets to healthy doctrine, the pure gospel. Talks in chapter 2 about what healthy members look like, how they live, how they interact with each other. And in chapter 3, he talks about what it looks like for the church to have a healthy testimony in the world. So I believe that this letter is timely for us as a church because we need to be unified in our understanding as a church as to what we are supposed to be, what it is that we are to be devoted to in terms of doctrine, how we are to function as a church corporately and as members individually. I believe this letter is individually relevant for each of us because there's such a focus throughout this letter on growth in godliness, on good works. Good works are actually mentioned eight times in these three short chapters. We as a church want to be holy people. We are to be zealous for good works. And Paul speaks to this concern in his letter to Titus. This letter also calls us to be faithful to the gospel. The book of Titus underscores the urgency of rejecting false doctrine and insisting on the pure gospel message. There are threats without and threats within that must be resisted in every age. And as I mentioned, the book of Titus is about our evangelistic testimony as a body. Our concern as a church is not just to be healthy in the way we engage with each other within these walls. We want to represent Christ in our community. We want to be faithful and effective in our mission as a church. So the concern for pure doctrine and good works in this letter actually has this outward concern that if we're going to represent Christ in an increasingly secular and pagan culture then we need the straightforward exhortation and teaching that's found here in this book. In short, the church needs this letter. Not just in Paul's day, not just on the island of Crete, the church needs this letter today, right here in Douglas County. And in God's providence, he has preserved this letter so that we as believers in 2022, in this local church, so that we can benefit from its message And even in Paul's greeting, we find three key needs that the church has. And so as we look at verses 1 through 4 this morning, I want to show you these three needs that the church in Paul's day had, but needs that we have as well. Let's look at those together. I'll read the text first. Titus chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth which accords with godliness... In hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began, and at the proper time manifested in his word, through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior, to Titus, my true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father in Christ Jesus our Savior. Father, as we come to your word this morning, we recognize that This is for us. We recognize this morning, we as a church, are in need of the truth that you would reveal through your word. I pray, Lord, that this morning we would be strengthened in our faith, that we would be instructed in the truth. And whether we're watching from home or sitting here in these chairs, that our hearts would be unified together in our understanding of what it is that you desire for us here as a church. So, Lord, strengthen me as I seek to preach your word, and I pray that you would take your truth and that you would implant it into our hearts and form in us what you desire to see in us. We pray this in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen. So, three needs that the church has, and the first we find in verse 1. Number one, the church needs 
a proper source of authority. The church needs a proper source of authority. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ. It's interesting, next to the book of Romans, this is actually the longest introduction of any of Paul's letters. He takes quite a bit of time here to introduce himself and to greet Titus and sort of set up this letter. And he's not doing that because Titus doesn't know who Paul is. I mean, Titus knows that already, obviously. But Paul knows that this letter is going to be read publicly. So he's sort of talking to Titus, knowing that other people are listening in, knowing that this letter is not only going to be read publicly, it's going to be passed around. And Paul wants to reinforce Titus's status as his personal representative. That's why he starts off with Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ. He's sort of showing his apostle membership card, saying, listen, I have authority, and what I'm about to say in this letter is binding on you. Everyone who hears it, who claims to follow Jesus, needs to listen to what I have to say. You see, Titus had been left on Crete to do a job, to put things in order, to establish elders, to teach the church. But would the people listen to him? Would the people take Titus seriously? Would they recognize his authority? Well, the people should only respect Titus's authority if Paul himself has authority, because Titus is Paul's representative. And Paul certainly does have authority. He begins by introducing himself as a servant of God. Now, this title, servant of God, is really sort of an Old Testament title. Moses was a servant of God. Joshua was a servant of God. The prophets were often introduced as servants of God. And especially the Messiah, the suffering servant of Isaiah, is known as the servant of God. And so I think there's a reason Paul grabs this title and applies it to himself. There was a strong Jewish influence on this island. In fact, if you look down in verse 10 of chapter 1, we see that Paul makes reference to the circumcision party there at the end of verse 10. That's referring to this Jewish contingency. And in verse 14, again, he has to warn them to not devote themselves to Jewish myths. So there's a strong Jewish influence on this island so Paul claims this ancient Hebrew title of servant of God. He says, yeah, I can speak that language. I know what you're talking about. And I'm actually the true continuation of the Old Testament authority of God. The God who spoke in the Old Testament, that's the God that I serve. That's the God I speak for. But then Paul adds this additional phrase, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Paul has been sent by the Messiah. That's what apostle means. Someone who is sent. Someone who's been commissioned. And Paul has been commissioned by Jesus, who is the king. He's commissioned by Jesus to go, to represent Christ, to proclaim the message of Christ. To speak with the authority of Christ. To preach the gospel. So while Paul is a servant of God, the specific way in which God has called Paul to serve is as an apostle of Jesus. And this meant that Paul possessed divine authority. Paul possessed divine authority as a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ. And this is what Titus needed to hear. Not because he didn't know who Paul was, but because Titus needed this encouraging reminder. Because Titus was going to face opposition. Look at what Titus was going to have to do. Look down in verse 10 and 11. There are many who are insubordinate empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. Titus was going to have to deal with these guys. And he needed to be encouraged that he had the backing of Paul and that Paul had the authority of Christ. You can look in chapter 2, verse 15. Same thing. After laying out the true gospel, the pure gospel, in Titus 2.15, Paul tells Titus, declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Titus wasn't to go in there and exhort them and rebuke them and to teach these things because he was a big deal or even because Paul was somebody. He actually carried the authority of Christ with him as he preached the gospel message. Look at chapter 3, verses 10 through 11. Paul tells Titus, As for a person who stirs up division 
after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him. Knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. Titus was going to face conflict, interpersonal conflict, doctrinal controversy, and he was going to have to wield with his words the very authority of Christ. So Paul, in introducing this letter, is encouraging Titus to be bold, to be direct, to be firm, to be resolute. But he also introduces himself with this kind of authority, this apostolic authority, because the church needed to know this as well. Paul's letter was going to confirm the truth of the gospel. Paul's letter was going to confront errors. Paul's letter was going to condemn false teachers and those who were causing division. Paul's letter was going to communicate God's desired pattern for life, life in the church and personal life as well. The people of Crete needed reminding. They needed to be put formally on notice that Titus spoke for Paul and Paul spoke for Christ. And Jesus Christ has the final word in every controversy, in every disagreement, in every decision. He is the ultimate authority in and over the church. Listen, the church always needs a proper source of authority. Authority is always the issue. It's always the issue when it comes to matters of doctrine. It's always the issue when it comes to matters of morality. What is right and what is wrong? What is acceptable? What is not acceptable? What is holy and what is worldly? Consider the questions and challenges we face today. What is the true definition, for example, of marriage? What is the true definition of gender? What it means to be a man? What it means to be a woman? What are the proper boundaries for sexuality? How you answer these questions is ultimately a matter of authority. Is it somebody's personal experience? Is it the consensus of our culture and community? Is it some scholars with PhDs? Who has the final word? What about this question? Is physical intimacy before marriage or outside of marriage permissible? Or what happens when we die? Does hell exist? And who goes to heaven? Is attending church really necessary? Do I really need to become a member and be accountable to biblical leadership? Is divorce permissible for the believer? And if so, when? How should church discipline be carried out? And in what cases should church discipline be the solution. We could go on and on with countless questions that face the church today. And to all of these questions, you can find all sorts of answers. How do we know who's correct? It's ultimately a matter of authority. The real issue is always who says. Who has the final word? Who is it that makes the rules? Who gets to determine what is right and what is wrong? Listen, friends, you are going to face real challenges in your life. You are going to have to answer big questions. You are going to have to make major decisions. You're going to face crossroads. And at that moment, when you come to that fork in the road, when you personally are faced with a decision that affects your life, your family, You need to have the proper source of authority to guide your thinking, to inform your decisions, to to dictate your actions. And listen, it must be Christ. Your authority must be the word of God. And this is not just important for you individually. As a church, we're going to face tests. As a church, we are going to face challenges. We are going to face controversies. We're going to face conflicts. But we must have an unwavering commitment to the ever-present authority of Christ in his word. Our authority is not culture. It's not. Look how Paul treats the culture in chapter 1, verse 12. He says, One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith. Paul's not interested in learning from the culture. He's interested in seeing that culture transformed as people repent of sin and their lives are brought under the submission of Jesus Christ. So culture is not the authority. Big personalities aren't the authority. 
Again, in verse 10, we see that in, in this situation, there's people who are insubordinate, empty talkers, and deceivers. They have influence, but big personalities aren't the ones who are supposed to have authority. Paul tells Titus that these people, verse 11, must be silenced. So it's not the culture, it's not big personalities, it's not the most persuasive speakers, it's not your personal experience, it's not sociologists, it's not psychologists, God's word must be the undisputed, undiluted, exclusive authority in the church. The church needs a proper source of authority. And that's why Paul opens up this letter by flashing his card. A servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ. The Christ who is the Messiah, the anointed one, the king who possesses all authority in and over the church. So the church needs a proper source of authority. But number two, the church also needs a proper understanding of our priority the church needs to know what its priority is. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth which accords with godliness. Paul is an apostle, which means that he has a mission given to him. And I want you to look at the way he describes his ministry. He describes his mission in this way. Verse 1, he says that his apostleship is for the sake of the faith of God's elect. Faith describes the response of the believer to the promise of the gospel. It's total dependence on Jesus to save. Believing in who he is, believing what he says, and trusting in him to save. Apart from faith in Christ, there is no salvation. There is no redemption. Paul was obviously dedicated to seeing unbelievers come to faith in Christ. That's why he preaches the gospel everywhere he goes. He tells the Corinthian church that he resolved to know nothing among them except Christ and him crucified. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, he calls himself an ambassador for Christ, that God makes his appeal through him as he urges people to come and be reconciled to God. So Paul preaches the gospel to unbelievers seeking to see them come to faith in Christ. But faith is also something that, according to Jesus, that can be small, it can be weak, it can be faulty among believers. So Paul's not just preaching the gospel to those who don't know Christ, seeking to see them believe, but in Paul's letters, he often prays that the faith of believers would be strengthened. He tells the churches that he longs to hear of the firmness of their faith that he rejoices to hear of their faith. So Paul says his ministry is for the sake of the faith of God's elect. He wants to see unbelievers believe, and he wants to see believers grow in their faith. So what does he mean by this term elect? For the sake of the faith of God's elect. Elect, once again, is kind of an Old Testament concept it's a term that was commonly used to describe the believing remnant of Israel, God's people in the Old Testament, those whom he had chosen. He didn't choose the Egyptians. He didn't choose the Philistines. He didn't choose the Assyrians or the Canaanites, the Babylonians. He chose Israel to be his special people, to be his possession. And he refers to Israel as his elect in the Old Testament. Paul now uses that same term, that term of God's special, loving, saving, gracious choice. And he uses this term elect to describe the believing Gentiles on Crete. He's pointing out that God has chosen both Jews and Gentiles to make up this new body called the church. That God had planned before time, unconditionally, not based on anything except for his divine pleasure, to save people to save people from every tribe and tongue and kingdom and nation. So when Paul refers to the elect, I think he has sort of two types of people in mind. Those who are marked out for salvation, but who have not yet believed. He wants to see them reached with the gospel. But he's also including those in the church who already believe. He wants to see their faith strengthened. So Paul has one eye on the lost and one eye on the church. And he spends himself for the sake of their faith, for the faith of God's 
elect. This is his priority. He knows what his job is. He knows what he is to live for, to proclaim Christ, so that the elect who do not yet know him would have their eyes opened and come to salvation, and so that the elect who have already believed would be strengthened in their confidence and their faith in Jesus Christ. His apostleship is for the sake of the faith of God's elect. But then he continues on, not just the faith of God's elect, but also their knowledge of the truth, verse 1. Their knowledge of the truth which accords with godliness. As he wants to see their faith increased, Paul also, with it, desires to see their knowledge of the truth increase. You see, faith is not opposed to knowledge. Faith goes hand in hand with knowledge. Faith is not just a blind leap in the dark. Faith lays hold of the truth. The faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth. Specifically, the truth that faith lays hold of is the truth about Jesus. Often in the New Testament, this idea of the truth refers to the message about Christ. It refers to the gospel itself. And Paul wants Titus to insist on this message. If you look in chapter 2, verse 15, once again, he says, Declare these things, referring to the gospel. Exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Paul, Paul's ministry, his priority, was that those who have faith in Christ would be secure and growing in their knowledge of the truth. That's why he wants Titus to declare these things, to exhort and rebuke, and to let no one disregard him. In chapter 3, verse 8, he says, The saying, referring to the gospel once again, the truth about Jesus, the saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things, so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. Paul's priority is not just that they would believe, but that they would know and understand and be secure in the truth, specifically the truth about Jesus Christ as proclaimed in the gospel. That's what his priority is. He wants to see faith in Christ increase and along with it knowledge of the truth. And look at what knowing this truth is intended to produce back in chapter 1 verse 1. The sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness. Knowing the truth, believing the truth, is intended to produce not just right kind of thinking, but a right kind of living. Godliness. Maybe that's a term that we don't use very often today. We probably don't use it often enough. Godliness. Would you describe someone as a godly person? Do you ever pray that God would help you to become more godly, to grow in godliness? What is godliness? What does that mean? Well, very simply, it means acting like God. <laughs> that we would become more loving because God is love. That we would become more holy because God is holy. That we would grow in wisdom as we learn to think God's thoughts after him. That we would become more merciful because God is merciful. That we would do acts and works of righteousness because God is righteous. To be godly is to reflect the character of God. And not only does that kind of living reflect God's glory, it shows the world what God is like, but it also pleases God. That's what godliness means. It's a certain kind of living that reflects God to the world but also gives honor vertically to God as his kids become more like their dad and start to show off that family resemblance. That pleases our heavenly Father. And Paul says that the knowledge of the truth, if we really get it, we really know it, we actually believe it, that it produces godliness. This is really the proof that the faith we have is real, and that the truth we believe is from God. It produces godliness. Faith in Christ, knowledge of the truth, is meant to be fleshed out in a God-centered life that seeks to make God supreme in every action, every thought, and every deed. Listen, truth that doesn't change us has not been properly understood. If it doesn't change you, that means you don't actually get it. 
Not only must we as a church have good doctrine, but good doctrine must have us. That truth should rule us and, and govern and direct the way that we live. The power of the gospel is meant to be displayed not just in salvation, making dead people alive, but also in sanctification, making sinners more and more holy, more and more like Christ. The knowledge of the truth accords with godliness. These good works display the validity of our faith, and they demonstrate that the message we preach, the doctrine we espouse, is actually true. Listen, just as the church needs a proper source of authority, we at Redemption Hill also need a proper understanding of our priority. The mission of Paul to see faith in Christ increase and to see the truth of the gospel take root and produce godly living. That mission that he had is our mission as well. We also are to prioritize the faith of the elect. And what that looks like is evangelism and discipleship. If our priority is the proclamation of the gospel, then people who don't yet know Christ need to be told about Christ. And those who come to believe in Christ, they come to believe the gospel, their faith needs to be strengthened. It needs to be matured. It needs to be deepened. That's discipleship. That's why we say here at our church that our mission is to glorify God by being and making disciples of Jesus. We think that we honor God when we proclaim the message of Christ so that the lost come to believe, and then we help them to grow in Christ's likeness. If we are to prioritize the faith of the elect, then the ministry of the gospel, ministry of evangelism and discipleship must be our priority as well. We are also to prioritize the knowledge of the truth that accords with godliness. Growth in holiness, growth in sanctification must be a priority for us. We're not content to simply have a really good doctrinal statement. We're not content just to sing songs here at this church that are biblically accurate and clear. We're not content just to be organized in a biblical fashion and have the right church polity. We want to be holy. We want to grow in godliness. Jesus said when he told his disciples, go and make disciples of all the nations, one of the things they were to do was to teach them everything that Christ has commanded. Jesus taught doctrine, but he also taught how to live. He taught what it looks like to be godly. So if we are going to be faithful to our mission of it as a church, we need to know what our priority is, the proclamation of the gospel and growth in godliness. This is our priority as well. And all of this results in the glory of God. Notice that we seek the faith of his elect, those whom he has chosen to display his glory and magnify his grace. This is God's plan for the world. And as we grow in godliness, we reflect his glory, we please him. So all of this, as we preach the gospel, as we make disciples, as we help people grow in knowledge of the truth and in godliness... This is ultimately all intended to bring glory to our Father. And this is our mission, to glorify God by being and making disciples of Jesus. Listen, if our mission, if our priority as a church is not clear to us, if this is at all muddy for us, or if we have different pockets of people in the church who think the church is to be going different directions, prioritizing different things, emphasizing different things, if we are not all on the same page then we may, as a church, do a number of good things, but we will fail to accomplish the essential task that God has given us. If we're going to be a healthy church, a faithful church, a church that glorifies God, we must know our priority and then give ourselves to it. It's the ministry of the gospel to see sinners saved and sanctified for the glory of God. So the church needs a proper source of authority. The church needs a proper understanding of our priority. But then third, finally, the church also needs a proper grasp of eternity. We need a proper grasp of eternity. Paul's apostleship is for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth which accords with godliness. And then look at verse 2. In hope of eternal life. In hope of eternal life. We've seen Paul's identity in this greeting. We've seen Paul's mission 
But now we see Paul's motive. This is why he does what he does. And this is what drives him. This is the fire that keeps his engine going. You know, some people live for the weekend. But Paul was living for eternity. There is eternal life to be found in Jesus. And Paul believed this. Paul had this hope, this hope of eternal life. And he shared this hope with others. And the fact that Paul had this hope of eternal life, that's why he could experience beatings. That's why he could experience shipwreck. That's why he could experience stoning and imprisonment and abandonment and exposure to the elements and hunger. And he could keep going back for more. It's because he had the hope of eternal life. His confidence in the promise of the gospel was what anchored and invigorated his ministry. Notice what he says about this eternal life that he hopes in. This eternal life which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began. God promised this before the ages began. Paul is looking at the bookends of history here. This future eternal life that Paul has in view was promised by God in eternity past, before the ages began. Paul has in mind here the divine counsel in eternity past as the Father, Son, and Spirit resolved to save sinners, to bring them into eternal life. Paul has in view this redemptive purpose that comes from the very heart of God. Paul knows that this eternal life that he hopes in, it's not just some afterthought. It's not just some coincidence. This is part of God's redemptive plan from the beginning. It is way bigger than Paul, way bigger than Paul's moment. And that excites him. That encourages him. And this eternal life that was promised before the ages began was promised by a God, Paul says, who never lies. God who never lies. Paul was confident in this promise because it came from God himself. And he knew that God is personally and perfectly faithful. The character of God ensures that he always keeps his promises. Now, this would have been a stark contrast to what the Cretans were used to. We already looked at verses 12 and 13. Their culture was used to lying. Lying was the norm. That's what everybody did. It was just accepted and expected. So these people were used to hearing empty promises. They were used to having people back out of their agreements. These people were used to being cynical and skeptical. But Paul says, listen, God is not like us. God is not like the Cretans. He can be trusted. He never lies. And he promised eternal life. This was his purpose from the beginning. And this is Paul's hope that he knows this is the final outcome of his faith, that he will enter into eternal life. Paul's not only confident because God promised this eternal life and God never lies, but he's also confident in this eternal life because he sees it breaking out now. Look in verse three. He says, and at the proper time, This eternal life has been manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God, our Savior. The preaching Paul has in view here is not so much the act, not so much one person standing up and talking to a crowd. He's talking about the message itself being proclaimed, the substance of that preaching. You see, the gospel is going forth. God has commanded Paul to take this life-giving news about Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection to the Gentiles, to places like Philippi, Ephesus, Crete, Rome. And as Paul takes this message and preaches it, you know what's happening? People are believing. As people place their faith in Jesus, eternal life is springing up within them as they are raised spiritually from their dead state and they're being made into new creatures. The old things are passing away. All things are becoming new. Paul is seeing it. He's seeing this happen through the preaching of the gospel throughout the world. And that gives him confidence. This eternal life that he's hoping in It is now being manifested in the world through the preaching with which Paul has been entrusted by the command of God, his Savior. And he sees that this is happening, according to verse 3, at the proper time. It's happening at exactly the right time. 
God is accomplishing his plan exactly on schedule. Paul sees God as the sovereign savior who's accomplishing his plan of redemption, planned and promised in eternity past, manifested in the present, and leading to an eternal life to come in the future. This is his hope. This is his confidence. This is what undergirds his ministry, his preaching, his apostleship. Now listen, if this kind of hope for eternal life, if this confidence that when you die, you will be in the very presence of God, enjoying eternal life, glory, comfort, if this sounds foreign to you, if this is something you don't have, but something you want, and I'm here to tell you today, it can only be found in one place. At the end of verse 3, notice he refers to God as our Savior. God is our Savior. Eternal life is salvation from eternal death. Eternal life and joy is salvation from condemnation and judgment in hell. And the one who provides this salvation is God. God, our Savior. But then look down at verse 4. He says at the end of verse 4, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus, our Savior. So which is it, Paul? Is God the Father our Savior, or is Christ Jesus our Savior? Yes, is the answer. God is the architect of our salvation. The Father is the one who plans and decrees salvation in eternity past. And therefore, he is rightly called our Savior. But his son, Jesus, is the one who accomplishes our salvation by his work on the cross, which makes him also our Savior. As John Calvin once wrote, the son brought us salvation from the father, and the father bestowed it through the son. So listen, if you don't have the hope of eternal life, if you don't have salvation, then there's only one place you can find it. You need to look to the Lord. If you will turn from your sin and repent, if you will surrender to Jesus Christ as your Lord, if you will trust in him alone to save you, he will pour out his grace. That's why Paul seeks to bless Titus. He says, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. Paul knows that grace, that forgiveness, that strength, it comes from God through Christ. He knows that peace with the Father, the assurance that your sins are dealt with and that eternal life is yours, that comes from God the Father through Jesus Christ the Son. So listen, if you will turn to the one and only Savior this morning, if you will cry out to him in faith, trusting him, believing him. He will forgive you. He will cleanse you. He will make you new. He will make you alive. And he will bring you into God's family. And then you will have peace with God. Peace that is paired with a promise that eternal life is yours. And then you too can have this hope, the same hope that Paul has. Church, those of you who do know Christ you have this hope. Listen, if we're going to be the church that God is calling us to be, then we need a proper grasp of eternity. The hope of eternal life needs to be our foundation. We need to be enamored with God's eternal plan of redemption. We need to be the kind of people who are confident in his purposes and in his promises because we know that in Jesus Christ we have eternal life. There just isn't anything in the world that's more weighty than that. If we're going to be healthy, if we're going to be faithful in our mission, then we, like Paul, need this eternal perspective. What else is going to inoculate us from the dangers of the world, the dangers of materialism, the idolatrous love of comfort and wealth and worldly status? What is it that can protect us from being sucked into that? an abiding hope of eternal life? What is it that will free us from the fear of man, from being, being gripped by the fear of what might be lost if we are rejected, if we are sanctioned and censored, if we're even persecuted? What will free us from the fear of man? The hope of eternal life. What will sustain us in the face of loss? 
in the face of suffering, in the face of trials. It's the hope of eternal life. What will energize our war against our own sin? What will compel us to live increasingly pure lives that reject temptation? Only if we know that we have something better. Only if we have the hope of eternal life. What will fill our hearts to sing at the top of our lungs even when we seem to be small in number, when all the world thinks we are fools? It's the hope of eternal life. What is it that's going to motivate you to serve, to sacrifice, to invest in what cannot be seen? It's the hope of eternal life. Many of you know the story of Jim Elliott, the missionary who gave his life in 1956. And he famously said that he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. That's the hope of eternal life. And church, we need that. We need that perspective of eternity. We need that hope of eternal life if we are going to be the kind of people and be the kind of church that God desires for us to be. In Paul's introduction to this little book of Titus, we are reminded this morning what the church needs. We need a proper source of authority. We need a proper understanding of our priority, what our mission is. And we need a proper grasp of eternity. We need hope of eternal life. May God use us in this church to advance the gospel in this world, to see faith awakened in the hearts of the lost, to see faith strengthened in the hearts of believers. My prayer for us as a church this year is that we would so grow in our knowledge of the truth that our lives would come to increasingly reflect God and his character more and more every day. And that we would be faithful to rejoice in the hope of eternal life. Who knows what funerals will happen this year? Who knows what jobs will be lost? Who knows what friendships might be damaged? But we do know that we have the hope of eternal life. And it's this that is going to sustain and protect and motivate and strengthen this church, as we seek to be faithful to the mission God has given us. Father, thank you for this little letter, for that growing and rambunctious church on the island of Crete. Thank you for this letter to Titus that lays out what a healthy church looks like. Lord, thank you for the reminder this morning of what it is that we as a church need. We need to know where authority comes from. We need a confidence in your word and in the authority of Christ. Thank you for reminding us what our mission and our priority is to be. It's the proclamation of the gospel to see faith awakened and strengthened. It's the proclamation of the truth to see believers grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And Lord, we thank you for this confidence and this hope that we have, the hope of eternal life that comes through Jesus. Thank you that no matter what we may lose or sacrifice this year, We know that nothing can take away that eternal reward because Jesus died and rose again and has purchased for us with his blood eternal life. Lord, may this church have a clear understanding of those things. May we always turn to you with our needs and we pray that you would be glorified in your church. Amen.